Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 36, produced 2 March 2017. Star Wars creator George Lucas called it the dark side. That place where one draws power from the darker emotions like fear, anger, hatred, and aggression. And it's not only Jedi Knights who can succumb to the dark side, I suppose there's a bit of it in each of us. And as Lucas has shown us, it can be seductive. A new book to be released in the U.S. this month explores the dark side of a number of Scots who came to America on great waves of immigration, only to prove themselves to be rogues, con artists, charlatans, reprobates, and worse. When we come back, author Ian Lundy will take us to the dark side, found in the pages of his new book, Between Daylight and Hell, here, Under the Tartan Sky. History, heritage, archaeology. In 2017, Scotland invites you to peer into the mists. Scotland's history is a long and rich one, filled with stories of legends and myths. Its heritage can be found in fields of standing stones and the ruins of castles that once were clan strongholds. Through the science of archaeology, new discoveries of ruins and artefacts are continuously being made, but often reveal tantalising new clues to stories yet untold. In 2017, more than 50 events are planned to build around nine major festivals, as Scotland invites visitors and locals alike to come face to face with the past. Great legends have been made throughout Scotland's history. What story will you write when you visit Scotland in the year of history, heritage and archaeology? A great many volumes have been written about the innumerable contributions of the Scots to the United States. A favorite of mine is Born Fighting, How the Scots-Irish Shaped America, by Jim Webb. They arrived here on great waves of immigration, first in the late 1700s following the Highland Clearances, and again in the late 1800s. Evidence of their good deeds can be found in virtually every corner of our society. One helped build the Statue of Liberty, Another helped to save the buffalo from extinction, and one played the pipes while defending the Alamo. But not all Scots who came to the United States seeking a better life proved to be saints. There were sinners among them, those whose deeds in America would bring not glory to Caledonia, but shame. Between Daylight and Hell is a new book due to be released in the U.S. this month by Whittles Publishing. It's already received wide acclaim and positive reviews across Scotland, the home of its author, Ian Lundy. He's a veteran Scottish newspaper man of more than 40 years. He hails from Ayrshire, and his work has appeared in almost every national newspaper in the UK. He met and married his wife, an American, and in 2015 they moved here from Scotland. That was the first step on a long journey that led Ian Lundy to discover some of his more unseemly countrymen. I would come over here on holiday uh, and uh, I, I kept on, everywhere I went, I kept on seeing uh, markers or buildings or uh, memorials to Scots who had, who had done things which were quite remarkable. And I'd never heard of them. And I'd been more than 30 years at this time a journalist in Scotland. Of course, I thought I knew everything, but I'd never heard of these people. So I thought, I wonder how many people I can find who have left their native land, come to America, and achieved something which could be classed as extraordinary, brilliant, amazing, or whatever. So I started compiling a list, and mostly I went to the internet for that was my first uh, port of call, as it were. I, I went through libraries, I went through all sorts of places, ships, manifests, that type of thing. And I drew up a list of about 600 people. And I've got it all listed state by state, you know. 
I'm quite sad that way. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, get a life. So I, yeah, I know, I know, it's terrible. <laughs> but I then be, I then began to categorize them slightly. And I thought if I if I uh, was to write a book about this, what's going to be interesting? And it was the bad guys who kept jumping out at me. Some of the stories that uh, that are in the book, and even some that didn't quite make it, were remarkably bad, remarkable for badness, you might say. And I also, um, I always remember my first ever newspaper editor, he said to me uh, one time that uh, people want to read other people's misfortune. That's her you know, that was newspaper readers want to read about other people's misfortune. That was his words. And that's always stuck with me throughout my whole journalistic career. So I think that people do want to read about bodies. They're not going to be so interested about famous churchmen or famous educators. I think the readers like to you know, a, a bit of gore and a bit of, uh, uh, I don't know, badness. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, that in, in my early radio and television days that I can relate to your editor's comment because uh, people would always say, well, you know, why are you shooting? Why do you put on the, all the blood and the guts and that kind of stuff? And, that, you know, and they say if it bleeds, it leads. I always think, especially on a, on a, on a local level, Glenn, you know, if, uh, if you're in a small town uh, and you have a local paper there and there's a story about some, some guy who has, I don't know, uh, been, been drunk and incapable and the people will say, I know his mother, and all this kind of thing. Well, what a shame for the family. And But, but they read the story voraciously. Yeah? And it's, share it uh, with their neighbors. And did you see that story about so-and-so? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Before we get too deep into the book, then, uh, you mentioned, uh, obviously, that you, your career is as a journalist. You are recently uh, immigrated here yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background as a journalist and your life in Scotland. When did, how and when and why did you get into journalism? What part of the country did you grow up in? Give us a little background on you. I grew up in a town called Largs in North Ayrshire, which uh, is a very uh, attractive, beautiful part of the country. It's by the, by the Firth of Clyde, so you can look out to the water and all that kind of stuff. So I was very lucky to be brought up in that uh, part of the world. As for my journalistic career, well, it was it was very sudden, if you like. I was at uh, high school on a Friday afternoon, and I started my local paper on the Monday morning. No training. The first the first time I had uh, I sat in front of a typewriter was the first morning I walked into the paper. So so that was how sudden it was. I spent six years there, and I I worked in Aberdeen for another seventeen years, and then I spent time between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, working just working in various newspapers. I was a I was a newspaper guy all my life. I went from reporter, features writer, news editor, that type of thing. And uh, I met my wife about uh, two thousand and one. She's an American. We actually met online, and she came across to Scotland and she uh, stayed with me for eleven years. We got married in two thousand and five, and we had always said that uh, if circumstances were right, we could go back to America and, and stay here for a few years, see how it goes. So in March 2015, we made the move across and uh, to Arizona. I mean, it's uh, it's very, very hot. That's a, that's a big difference, I find, Glenn. That, uh, <laughs> you know, after, all the, after all the rain and the wind of Scotland, here you are in uh, 120 degree Fahrenheit heat sometimes in the summer. And that's, that can be unbearable. But, yeah, I mean, there, there is evidence of, of, of Scots everywhere here, I have to say. No, saying, I mean, that is, that is my, my journalistic career, really. It was, it was actually 40 years in journalism in Scotland uh, before I moved over here, 40 years exactly. I'm curious, as a journalist with that long a history of writing, was there always in your mind the idea that someday I'm going to write a book and it was coming here and seeing all of those mentions of Scots that started you down the path or was that the seminal moment when once you started looking into that that you thought you know hey there's a book but there's maybe book material here and I'm going to go after it was it always a dream or did it start about because of your visits here well I think a, a bit of both really I mean you know when you're a journalist people always say to you oh you've, you've got a book in you but then people always suggest that you ought to write a book about something that has been part of your, your work. They, they, they always then go on to suggest that you could write a book about a story that you've been covering in the paper. 
Now, the, the, the last thing I want to do is make my book, if you like, a, a book is a, is a hobby. It's almost your leisure time. And I don't want my leisure time to be an extension of my working day. So, I mean, there were two or three big stories that I was involved in. But really, honestly, the, the last thing I wanted to do was start writing a book about them, having written so many words about them uh, already. So I, I always figured that if I was to come across the, the subject for the book, then I, I would find it. And sure enough, I, I suppose I stumbled across it here in in many ways. I remember one time being up in, uh, in the wilds of Arizona, if you like, uh, at a little tourist resort called Tonto Natural Bridge which is a really beautiful part of the country. It's a, it's a travertine arch which uh, looks down into a deep gorge below. And I was uh, standing in a little information shack and there was a piece of paper which gave you the history of the place. And I honestly couldn't believe my eyes because it was, it was said that this place had been discovered by a guy from Inverbervie in, in Scotland, which is a tiny fishing village on the east coast. And he had been apparently uh, fleeing from Indians. And uh, because he'd, he'd hidden underneath the arch and stayed there for three days, apparently the sort of law of the Wild West, if you like, back then was that he could claim squatters' rights. So he was obviously uh, a savvy kind of guy. Uh, he, was a, he was a miner uh, and travelled around the Wild West. And so he, he went to the authorities, claimed squatters' rights and was given the place. The place became his, and he he invited relatives across from Scotland, and they they made a home of it, which was bizarre, bizarre story. And he, and he he was quite a character, but that's what set me thinking. There must be hundreds more people like this guy who I've never heard of, and who are you know fascinating, interesting characters. And that was really what uh, started me off, and uh, on getting that big list prepared. You said earlier that you have a list. I think you said, I think you mentioned of like 600 odd people. When you, when you started, when you, you said, okay, here's my idea for my book. This is what I'm going to do. How did you start to go about compiling this list and beginning to find and identify these people? I would look, um, well, I would start off on the internet. And it's actually amazing when you get through all the sort of pokey little corners of the of the internet, what you can find. You can find records of old Caledonian societies in Illinois, for example. You can find records of who travelled on uh, on ships from Liverpool and Glasgow and Leith. Uh, and the, the amount of detailed information about them is, is quite incredible. And uh, you just need a little hint that somebody has done something uh, more. I mean, I wasn't looking for people who just came from came from Glasgow, got the boat, went to North Carolina and uh, owned a house and stayed there and died. That's really of no interest. You know, they, they had to have done something which which set them apart from other people. And you know, every everywhere I looked, you would you would see a little hint that this person had perhaps been responsible for a famous building or had been an artist and devoted his life to, you know, to such and such a colony, or uh, had been involved. There was one guy who was involved in building the, uh, the Statue of Liberty, um, things like that. And so I just kept on, even even innkeepers were very, very important back then. You know, the, the innkeeper in a small town was almost as important as a, as a local preacher, uh, you know, most of the town's business went through them. So loads of Scots finished up as tavern owners and innkeepers. So my list went from, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous, I suppose. You know, you get, like I say, there's a, the guy who who founded William and Mary College and there were professors up and down the East Coast of America, like the Princeton and uh, Penn State University. They were, it was full, these, these places were full of Scots academics and uh, there were churchmen everywhere but then in between them all I would I would occasionally find a guy who had done something which really was uh, quite bad quite shocking you know there, there, there were a few killers there a few a few guys who were uh, who, who were political scoundrels if you like one or two who were who had found themselves in positions of power, especially in the military, 
and were useless. Uh, there was one guy in the book who who found himself in a revolutionary war battle, and he, he lost it because he was as drunk as a lord. He was a general. He was leading his men into battle, stone drunk, you know. <laughs> and so it, it, people like that, and I suppose you just stumble across them. And when eventually I got down to thinking about a book, it was the bad guys who were jumping out at me all the time. I thought, if I'm going to write a book, this is what people are going to be interested in. And I know there are certain people who who will say, "Oh, but you're going to you're going to misrepresent the Scots in some way, because there was so much good that the Scots did," which is which is fine. I, I agree with that. But there is always a there is always the other side of the coin that the in among all the all the good guys, there were some bad apples. And as I said earlier, there uh, there's already been uh, volume after volume written about all of the the good Scots and, and the great things that they accomplished and and did in this country. So I guess as yeah. an author, even I would think, why do I want to just rewrite what someone else has already written? Yours is the first book I've seen that, as I say, kind of looks at the the dark side of the uh, of the immigrants from Scotland who came to the U.S. Yeah, that's right. I've had a couple of people actually contacting me. Who have, there's one chap who, who who wrote to me saying that uh, he wasn't going to buy the book. Um, he he appreciated the fact I'd spent so much time doing it, but he he, he was really quite shocked and disgusted that people uh, that someone like me would write a book which was portraying Scots as as bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wrote back and said that one day I would write a book about good Scots, and I'd make sure he bought that one. Yeah, nothing like a little denial in, in every life, I suppose. Well, let's talk a little bit then about uh, once you've, you've set your, your goal, you, you at least have a direction you're going in, you've begun the research. This must have been extra difficult for you because, one, you're researching Scottish history, Scottish individuals, so you're having to search for details about their lives from a couple of hundred years ago that obviously you would know nothing about. And yet, being Scottish yourself, this involves a great deal of American history that one reads in this book or certain episodes of American history. So you must have had to learn a great deal about American history at the same time. Did that make this a little bit more daunting? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right there. I mean, I had I had no idea about some of the things that I've eventually had to learn and uh, I mean, even the even the various wars in American history, you know, there were so many wars over here that uh, they seem to just blend into one another. So now I know the difference. <laughs> um, I know the difference between the the, the Mexican American War and the, the War of eighteen twelve, that type of thing. But uh, you know, no, it was fascinating. I have to say, um, it did require a lot of study, a lot of research, but it was fun doing it obviously knew the Scottish side of it. I mean, I, I just had to find out where they came from, find out a little bit about their background. And I knew the places and I knew the history of places like Perth and Aberdeen, what have you. But um, let's say somebody was, uh, for example, in West Virginia, which one guy was. Now, I would then have to find out everything about the area he was in, everything about the, I feel like the political and the society at the time he was living, uh, to try and put things in perspective. I didn't want to minimise uh, what they had done, but I did want to say, well, this is perhaps why something happened. There were dangers over in America. There were, obviously, uh, people like like the Indian tribes who were not keen to, to see immigrants at all. And, of course, with the whole Revolutionary War, the whole Civil War, the whole colonial thing going on, which obviously some of these characters I've written about were involved in quite heavily. And again, a lot of the characters from American history, it was fun and very, very interesting to research them. People like Patrick Henry, you know, with his uh, give me liberty or give me death speech. And uh, and the people up in Boston, like uh, the Adams people, Samuel Adams, John Adams, and people like that. Fascinating. I could say you did a great job because um, there's one of the individuals that I want to talk about in a few minutes um, that is involved in an episode of Texas history. And I'm a native Texan, and I learned things about Texas history reading that chapter of your book that I never knew and was never taught in uh, the Texas history that I, that I learned growing up in, in my native state of Texas. So um, I found that quite interesting, and I do want to get to that character as well as a few of the others that we're going to talk about specifically. But before we go there, I, 600, how did you, I don't recall exactly how many there are in the book, 20 or 20 or so, but 
How did you then go through the process to begin to narrow down and, you know, this one's going to get in and this one doesn't, this one gets in, this one doesn't kind of a one for me and two for them, one for me and three for them. Well, I, I suppose of the, of the 600, about 60 would be classed as bad. Uh, okay. So, so, so you start, you start with about 60 people. Um, I, I had about maybe 10 of them who I thought who were definitely going in because the stories were so good. And then I chose, I chose the rest mainly because of um, somewhat easier to research than others. And I thought, well, I can get so far with this guy, but I can't get far enough to tell a story. So I would discard people that way. I then would look at others and thought, mm, not possibly not bad enough to, to be able to get in. And I eventually, I think I, I think I ended up with 23 people, 16 separate chapters, and then seven people who made it into uh, a chapter at the end. And uh, they were the ones who, uh, who I thought were A, bad enough, and B, easy enough to get information on. The majority of the individual stories uh, seem to come from, and I admit I have not read the entire book yet, uh, but seem to come from the time frame of just prior to the American Revolution, which is more or less about the time immediately after the Highland Clearances, which is when a great deal of Scottish immigration to the U.S. obviously began. Uh, and then onward through our Civil War and into the early 19th century. Is there a reason that you concentrated on that time frame? Were you looking specifically at uh, immigrants early on in the U.S. state and, and not at something, let's say, in the 1940s or 50s? I was tending to look back into the uh, into the probably 1800s, 1700s. That's what I was finding most of my people. There were two, two people actually from the 20th century who did make it in. Uh, but but yeah you're right most are from uh, are from the 17 1800s 1900s and I guess that was when America was uh, in turmoil with all the various civil revolutionary wars and uh, that was when as you say again more and more people then were 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 going across so there were there were tons of records of uh, of Scots who, who departed their shore in, in thousands. You know, there were boatloads of people, and many of them were uh, involuntary uh, from the Highland Clearances. Mm -hmm. That is when the the majority of Scots landed in America. You, you also had to come up against, I mean, the, the thing with uh, people from the 1940s and 50s, some may be alive today. Ah. And obviously, uh, I, I didn't want to write about anybody who was still alive. Right, <laughs> sure. If we look at Scottish immigration into the United States, there's generally two groups. There's those that came directly as a result of the Highland Clearances and those who are now referred to in America as, well, the proper term is Scots-Irish. Um, and yet over here, they're often called Scotch-Irish. And I detest that term because I, I learned very early on, Scotch is a wonderful amber-colored liquid that can warm <laughs> you inside. Uh, so I like the term Scots-Irish, but the Scots-Irish are people that were primarily from the lowlands and the borders that first immigrated to Ireland uh, in large numbers and then onto what became known as the Ulster Plantation. And then it was their later generations, the sons, the daughters, the grandchildren who journeyed onto America, my own ancestry is of that type. They were Scots who moved to Ireland and then a later generation, a grandson is my direct immigrant to the United States. Highlander Scots were known to be badass. I mean, they were just down. I mean, that, that was the home of the fighting clansmen, the real warrior Scots. Um, and many of the pro people profiled in this book are indeed quite violent. Did you intentionally make any delineation when you were selecting who was coming in and who was not going to be in the book between um, Highlanders and the, the more lowland Scots? Or were you going purely on the value or the infamy value of their deeds? Yeah, the, the the latter. I I was going purely on the on the value of their deeds, and my criteria was that um, these were people who had to have been born in Scotland, gone straight from Scotland to America without passing Ireland, as it were, without passing go. So <laughs> it was um, it was people who who had made the jump directly from Scotland to America. Uh, so that would rule out the Scots Irish, as it were, um, which which had a I have to say it's a term of my dislike now. I mean, it was it was okay back then, in, in that it was handy for describing, uh, as you say, Scots who moved to Ireland. But also, among among those people who who made that journey, there were people who moved from England to Ireland. Yes, some from France to Ireland, mm -hmm. and they they all got called Scots Irish. It was the most bizarre thing. 
And but 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 even now, people will refer to me as Scots Irish. I'm saying, but I'm I'm not Scots Irish. I'm Scottish. You know, it's it seems to be stuck in the in the American culture somewhere that uh, everyone from Scotland or Ireland is Scots Irish. It was okay back in the you know, and as you say, in the plantation days. But it's I think it's run its course, and it needs to be. In my opinion, anyway, that one needs to be put to bed slightly. Well, and I agree. And I, since I started my the exploration of my Scottish roots, I, um, I, I came up. My personal mantra is Texan by birth, Scot by ancestry. Um, yeah. You can argue I'm Scot Irish because my my ancestry goes back to Scotland. My eighth great grandfather born in Glasgow in 1627. Um, I have another family line that goes through the Breckenridge family who were from the uh, Ayrshire area that they did move to the uh, to Ireland. And then it was his grandson who then came to the United States. And that's kind of my direct lineage. But to mm-hmm. me, that grandson, that grandfather, Alexander Breckenridge, he was Scottish. And he yeah. immigrated to Ireland and then a later generation immigrated to the United States. Well, that to me doesn't make me Scott Irish. Ireland was just a stop on the way for the family. And exactly. Just as if my generation, if my children, I don't have it, children, but if I did and they eventually moved to Russia, they wouldn't be Scott Irish American Russian. <laughs> you no. know, um, my, my attitude is that my ancestry uh, ancestors were Scottish. And Ireland was a stop along the way. And so I consider myself to be, by ancestry, I'm an affinity Scot. I wasn't born there. Um, But my ancestry began in Scotland in that line. And so I'm Scottish. I don't consider myself Scot-Irish. And and I like you, I I don't like the term. I detest the term Scotch-Irish. I can deal with Scot-Irish, but I'm like you. I think that needs to be rethought. If your ancestry came from Ireland and that was where the family began, then you're Irish-American. Right, yeah, or you're yeah. Scottish American, but Scott Irish to me is a bit of a misnomer. I would agree with you there. It's a bit like someone who who starts off in a particular country, goes and lives somewhere else for a few years, say say France, and then comes to America. They're not Scottish French or Scot French. <laughs> yeah. You know. It's crazy. Myself included, as you know, we've discussed, my hope is to immigrate to Scotland, and hopefully I'll live out the rest of my life there once I do get there. But I will always be an American. I was born in the United States. I am an American. I'm a Texan, but I'm I'm also not a Texan-American. You know, Texas is is part of the United States. So, yeah, that whole Scots-Irish thing just... um, it, 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 there's probably a podcast to be done on that single issue alone if I ever found an expert or two who wanted to talk about it. So, yeah, but good, uh, a good idea. Yeah. Uh, stirs emotions. It certainly stirs emotions in me. <laughs> well, and it was funny because it was when I first started interacting on the internet with, um, with friends in Scotland that I used the term Scotch-Irish and was immediately corrected and you know, straightened out that that was not right. You know? And so, yeah, I, it may be that that's a subject I need to look further into. Well, let's talk about some of the characters in the book. Let's get to some of the specifics. Um, there's a couple that I want to talk about, but I'll give you first go. Um, is there a favorite character that you have or one that stands out in your mind that, that you think we should talk about? I think it's quite difficult to pick a favourite, um, but there's one guy who springs to mind, I think, as being probably the most annoying guy who I wrote about. I remember my blood kept boiling the more and more I read and wrote about this guy. And his name is James Abercrombie. He um, he was born into great wealth in Bamsha, which is in the northeast of Scotland. And he, uh, he, he became a member of parliament there in Westminster, never had to want for anything. And back in those days, of course, you could buy your way into the army, which he did. He he bought himself a commission in the army and rose up the ranks, not because he was a good soldier, but just because of who he was and how much money his family had. And the post came up as commander-in-chief of British forces in North America. Now, this guy had fought a little bit in Europe in a couple of the European wars, but not to any great extent. But he got this job, never having led any men uh, or any forces in, in, on the battlefield. He was given this job purely because of his politics and his family history. That was all. So this is a disaster waiting to happen, and that's exactly what did happen. Um, he came to America uh, at the time of a war which was called the French and Indian War, which effectively was a supremacy territorial battle between 
uh, France and the UK. And his his only real battle was an attempt to take uh, what is called is now called Fort Ticonderoga. It's in northern New York State. Mm-hmm. It was then called Fort Carillon uh, because it was uh, it was it was in French hands. So he assembled he assembled uh, an army of fifteen thousand men, mostly uh, regular British regiments, with some uh, some of the American uh, provincial forces, including you know, the, the famous uh, Rogers Rangers. You may have heard of them. Uh, so he had fifteen thousand men. The French had only 3,000 to defend the fort, so uh, he was a massive favourite to win here. He was so bad, he was hated by his men, they called him, instead of Abercrombie, they called him Mrs Nanny Crombie, because he was such a, <laughs> a, big, a big jest, as we say in Scotland. He was he was absolutely useless, he, he, he had no, uh, political, he had no uh, military savvy, he had a terrible way with his men, he, this, he, he had nothing going for him, and the guy who was the sidekick of General Howe, he was he was a real he was a real leader of the of the expedition. Now tragically, Howe got killed uh, a couple of days before the assault on Fort Carillon was about to start, leaving the the uh, the idiot Abercrombie in charge of the whole thing. And his his men write scathingly about him. You know the the, the, the call him the biggest fool in Christendom type thing. You know in in, in a variety of different ways. Now the, the French, to be fair, even with their with their three thousand men, had had set had set quite an effective trap. You know they they had they had surrounded the place with uh, with big sharpened tree trunks and that kind of thing, and made it very difficult for the for the British forces to make much headway. What Abercrombie effectively did was because he had he had no idea what he was doing, he kept well away from the battlefield. He was about a mile or so away in a in a little old abandoned shed. And he effectively just told the men to charge, and that's what they did. They charged right into the the path of uh, of the, um, the the French, who, who of course rained arrows and musket fire and all this kind of thing down on them. And they just they just charged to their death. It was it was an absolute disaster. And uh, Abercrombie, uh, you know, he he eventually after after a day of carnage. More than more than five hundred were left dead. Uh, more than a thousand, thirteen hundred, I think, were were wounded. Many of them died. Others were missing, never seen again. And he eventually said, "Right, we'll turn tails and run." And he was first off the. He was first away onto the boats, and uh, he he ended up back down in New York. But uh, it was a, an absolute scandal that that be allowed to happen. And of course, as always in these situations. The people who die aren't the leaders, the useless leaders. People who die are uh, the, the ordinary soldiers. But, you know, these are these are soldiers. They, they leave their families and their wives and children behind, and they're led by a guy who is effectively a donkey, who, who knows nothing about military tactics, manoeuvre, anything whatsoever. And they pay, with it, they pay with their lives because of his ineptitude, you know. Like I say, you can hear my voice getting higher because... The more I wrote about this guy, the more I read about him. I just wanted to reach out, and if he was there, I'd have strangled him. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it got so it got me so angry that uh, purely because the way the system was back then, people who climbed to the top of the military tree weren't necessarily good military men at all. They were they were toffs. They were uh, aristocrats who perhaps, in his case, didn't know the first thing about soldiering. And the thing. I found interesting about the Abercrombie story was, as you said, not only his total ineptitude, but the fact that he eventually did lose his command and was and returned, uh, brought back to Scotland. But he retired and lived the life of an aristocrat with absolutely nothing more than a little bit of public scorn, perhaps no type of uh, of reckoning. In, in today's world, a commander who was that inept and lost that many men would certainly face court-martial or some sort of public rec- uh, recrimination. And um, from what I read in your book, Abercrombie went home and lived the good life. He did. And in fact, he was, he, he never saw, he never saw a battlefield again, to be, to be fair. He was never put in the battlefield again, but he was actually promoted. He, he was, he, he was promoted in, in the, the army ranks to, I think it was Lieutenant General. And then he was given this cushy post as Deputy Governor of Stirling Castle. So he, he, he lived the life of luxury. He lived the life of Riley. 
and then he spent weekends and what have you up in his uh, uh, castle in Bamshire. He 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 didn't pay for this at all. In fact, he was he was in some way rewarded for it, which was equally scandalous. But I mean, many many soldiers paid for their lives because of his stupidity, and uh, really that uh, I think. That, that carried on in, in the British Army for many years, that type of snobbery, where uh, people could buy commissions. And effectively, if you had the money, you could buy your way uh, up into, uh, you know, uh, uh, effectively you could, buy, you could buy a general ship, as it were. Obviously, obviously the, the Scots played a great part in the, in the military history of, of America, that there were many heroic Scots over here. But equally, equally there were quite a few who were just buffoons, and he, and he was a complete buffoon of the First Order. Well, as you say, there are a number of Scots who were certainly played important roles in the military of that time, that history. Um, and in my own state of Texas, that is true. There are Scots who are revered in the state of Texas. Um, there are, in fact, four Scotsmen who are remembered with their own memorial at the Alamo, which is, of course, the cradle of Texas liberty, one of whom was John McGregor um, that I've blogged about. He was the Texian piper. He was the Scottish uh, bagpiper, and he and Davy Crockett would actually engage in uh, duets. Some called them duels uh, between uh, Crockett playing the fiddle and uh, McGregor playing the pipes, trying to see who would win. Sometimes they performed a duet to raise the morale for the men. Um, but there are certainly um, Scots who figure prominently in the in the history of the state of Texas, my home state, and who are revered for what they did uh, toward the founding of the state of Texas. But your book brought up a bit of Texas history I'd never heard, and, and I'm a Texas native, and that was the story of James Duff. Um, oh, yeah. Now, this was a bad dude. And what caught my interest is because the episode that you write about that he's, I guess, infamous for, to me, bears a lot of similarity to a very infamous incident in Scottish history. And the incident here in Texas is called the Nueces Massacre. And to me, I saw a lot of similarities in many ways to the infamous Glencoe Massacre. So tell us a little bit about James Duff. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There are one or two similarities here in that you know these people were attacked while they slept. Um, but James Duff, he, he was born in a little village in Perthshire called Logierate, and uh, I think really he he kind of outgrew the Perthshire countryside and decided to seek his uh, a new life in in America. He he joined the army up in Boston, and he actually deserted quite early on. Uh, but I mean, I think desertion back then wasn't quite the stigma, isn't it? I think quite a lot of people deserted because. Uh, I think they were bored, they were sent to outposts in the middle of nowhere, and they just walked off. And uh, many people actually in America that I've read went back to their farms, took in the crops and the harvest, and then went back to their uh, regiments and were, were just accepted back in. You know, they didn't really class that as desertion. But uh, Duff did desert. He was recaptured and he was made to serve out his time. And he then moved to San Antonio. He was a successful guy, and in the early days, there was no sign that he was a ruffian or a, an evil person in any way. Then came the Civil War. Duff was uh, put in charge of uh, making sure that everyone in Texas, or in that certain area of Texas, around about San Antonio, uh, was on the Confederate side, as it were, swore an oath of allegiance to the Confederates. Now, there was a certain group of people who lived in what is called the Texas Hill Country, but these people were called free thinkers, and they came from uh, Germany. They'd been persecuted in Germany. There were a lot of academics, a lot of scholars, a lot of just very intelligent people, and they, they got this land in Texas, and they saw it as a kind of utopia where they, they, they didn't conform, certainly, to Texas norms, if you like. You know, they, they weren't uh, gunslinging types. Far from it, they were they were uh, a very civilized and very what you might call uh, enlightened people, and uh, of course they were expected to uh, take take the Confederate side. Now there was just no way this was going to happen because these people, for a start, abhorred the whole notion of slavery. They were quite a hundred percent against it. Secondly, they were very very loyal to the country that had given them sanctuary. 
So they're very loyal to the to the government up in Washington. And uh, they, in fact, they formed their own little band called the Loyal Union League, or the Union Loyal League, a bigger fun. But uh, so Duff and various other people formed what they call militias. Now, these militias down in Texas at that time were just the real ragtag armies of, uh, you know, some conscripts, some would-be soldiers, some hired thugs. That's really all they were. And they were sent into the, or Duff sent his men into the hill country to try and persuade these uh, these German uh, people to sign up and swear allegiance to the Confederates. Now, their way of doing that was to, you know, embark on a reign of terror. They would burn houses to the ground. They would uh, beat people up. They would hang people in some ways. In some cases, they would lynch them and uh, they would... Uh, take women and children and uh, lock them up for days on end. Men were held, you know, they were thrown into the river with uh, rocks tied to their feet, so they drowned. D- D- Duff had ordered all this. Duff had, uh, he-, he was a guy who, if-, if he wasn't there personally, he had orchestrated the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He was known as the rebel butcher of Western Texas. That's how bad he was. At some point, the governor of Texas gave a 30-day amnesty to people who weren't going to sign and said if you can get out of the state of Texas in 30 days, you'll get out unharmed. With that, about 60 of the Germans said, right, okay, we're going to make our way to Mexico. So they headed west and they went towards this river, which is the Nueces River, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nueces, yep. And uh, they were taking their time. They, because of the amnesty, they were they were uh, not thinking for a second that there's going to be any attack or anything to worry about. But Duff had other plans for them. He heard that they were going and he sent a, a band of soldiers after them, effectively. He did tell them to uh, not to leave any of these people alive, which has uh, distinct echoes of the Glencoe Massacre. That was the the words in the song of Leave None Alive called MacDonald. So, uh, so yes, it's uh, very, very Glencoe-like in, in some ways. But uh, what eventually happened was at um, eleven o'clock one evening, when the when the Mexicans, when the sorry, the Germans were camping, they were attacked by by Duff's men, and uh, of course a skirmish, a, a big fight uh, ensued. Thirty of the of the Germans were killed there and then. Uh, about seventeen or so escaped across the border to Mexico, but the real scandal uh, happened uh, because of nineteen people who had survived who were wounded and were effectively taken prisoner. And now, initially, the the Confederate men looked after them. They, they helped tend their wounds and all that. Then, about several hours later, they were taken into a wooded area and every one of them was shot through the head at close range in cold blood and just left there. And that was the biggest scandal of the lot. That's why it became known as the massacre, the Nueces massacre. And... Uh, you know, the, these bodies were just left there. They were left for the buzzards and the wolves and the coyotes just to to finish off. And it was three years before the families were able to get their hands on what remains left and give them a proper bill. And James Duff's name lives on, yeah. Yeah, and some of the, the interesting parallels I found to, to Glencoe, um, I guess, first of all, and, and the group we're talking about is, is if to, to narrowly define them, we're really out of an area now known as Fredericksburg, which is a very big German settlement in the state of Texas. Very, very popular tourist spot now. But what I find interesting is that that group of Germans did not want to sign the uh, loyalty oath to the Confederacy, much as the McDonald clan um, did not want to sign the uh, oath of allegiance to the King of England. And then once they decided to, um, and the, the clan chief was going to uh, Inverary, I believe it was, to sign the oath, he was late. Um, and it was in that process where the families, the McDonald's thought they were safe, that the Campbell troops descended upon them, took advantage of their hospitality, and then, of course, as we know, um, murdered so many. And the same is true here. So I, I see a lot of similarities in that. And that was a portion of Texas history. If I'd ever heard the story, I certainly didn't recall it. That was something that I definitely learned through um, 
through your book. And again, it, like Abercrombie, Duff goes on to relocate to another part of the United States and again become a very affluent, very well-respected member of society, and then eventually apparently returns to Scotland because his grave was only found just in the last two years in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's quaint. He's strange because in some ways he was a successful businessman uh, before the Civil War. He, again, he went to Denver, Colorado, and he was a very wealthy uh, businessman there. But in between times, he just seems to have gone crazy. When the Civil War came along, he seemed to have lost his mind altogether, became this murderous, uh, evil, almost a barbaric individual. He came back to, to the UK eventually. He died in London, and he was uh, his grave was discovered uh, not that long ago in a cemetery in Dundee. And it was discovered, actually, by a, a Confederate organization, or a, a, an organization that still exists to celebrate the Confederacy. We've talked about one guy who was a, a, a blithering idiot and cost thousands of lives of his soldiers. Duff was an, an out-and-out murderous lunatic, it seems, during that time period of his life. Um, Mary Garden, on the other hand, became... Uh, what in today's terms would be a superstar, a, a rock star, a celebrity in the operatic field. And her only claim to fame is that like so many, I shouldn't say so many, I shouldn't generalize, but like we hear that a lot of celebrities do, came from virtually nothing. And when they achieve celebritydom, is that a word? <laughs> when they become a celebrity, then um, suddenly they are somehow better than the rest of us, and they, they develop that snobbish attitude and look down on, and oftentimes, the people who helped them get there. And that's the classic case with Mary Garden. And uh, I found it interesting because she certainly doesn't seem as evil as some of the others that are in the book. She is the only woman, and, uh, and yet that is her crime, as it were, is that she became very very snobbish. She, she certainly did. I mean, uh, uh, there, there will be many, many people who are who will be surprised to find her in this book because she she was a probably the greatest uh, operatic singer that Scotland ever produced. There's no question about that. She had I've heard recordings of her, and she had a voice that would uh, break glass. You know, an amazing voice in a good way. You're saying it right. <laughs> Some of us have a voice that'll break glass in a bad way. Bad way, that's right. Uh, and she, she's particularly up in Aberdeen, where she uh, where she comes from. She's she's revered there in many circles. She she is a bad person, and she qualifies for this book in a different sense than many of the others. Her family moved across to America, and she was quite young. She was a teenager, and she settled in Chicago, and she was discovered, if you like, by by a guy who heard her singing in a, in a, a club, and he recommended her to this couple. Uh, so Mr. and Mrs. Mayer, Florence Mayer, was the woman who took her under her wing. The, the couple then took her into her house. Uh, the, the rest of the Garden family actually left, and uh, they lived in, in Connecticut. So uh, so Mary was left to pursue a singing career in Chicago. Now, this couple gave Mary Garden everything, absolutely everything. They, uh, they provided food, board, everything for her. They paid for singing lessons. They paid for everything. They, 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 they tried to, you know, make, make her their prodigy. And uh, they decided, or she decided, to send Mary Garden to Paris, which at that time was uh, at the centre of a, a huge cultural revolution. That was where everybody wanted to be. Not only did they send Mary Garden, they sent her tutor as well. They got her an apartment there. And it was uh, it was wonderful. I mean, she couldn't have landed on her feet, even uh, more, more than she did. But uh, she, I mean, she was a very attractive, beautiful young woman, and she behaved like it. She would socialise with men, and she apparently she was very keen on going to the horse racing. But she she would drink and she would go to bars. She would probably do everything you would expect a good-looking young woman to do. Uh, now, the story is that at some point along the way, she got pregnant. The story also seems to be that she gave the child away to a convent. Uh, now, this story was picked up by a scandal rag back in Chicago, and Mary Garden's reaction seems to have been very bad, I think. Mrs. Mayer came across from Chicago and questioned her about it, and she had denied it. 
But this left, whatever happened led to a huge, huge rift between the two women. And eventually, Florence Mayer said, OK, we're going to have to stop the money and get you back because you've been there for longer than we expected anyway. During her time in Paris, she made the breakthrough that she had been expecting to make and she became an absolute superstar, an operatic superstar. And by the time she got back to America, having lived the life of Riley, lived high on the hog thanks to the mayor's uh, largesse. And she then she then went on to, to snub the couple as if they didn't exist. She treated them like dirt. It was unbelievable. I mean, to, to say she was a, a, a diva, behaving like a diva, is an understatement, you know. I, I mean, she was an absolute bitch. I don't know if I can use that word. <laughs> she, you know, you know, it was it was just dis- disgraceful way to behave. And it came to a head one one evening when uh, when Mrs. Mayer attended a, an opera, and uh, she took her seat in a box, and in the very next box she heard Mary Gardner's voice. And she turned round and, you know, she hadn't seen her for a little while. And she said, hello, Mary, how are you? Or what's that effect? And apparently Mary Garden turned round and looked at her and fixed her with a stare, didn't smile, looked at her up and down and turned her back. And there was public snub. And it sent a chill down this woman's spine. And she, she never recovered from it. I mean, obviously, that kind of thing maybe wouldn't bother you or I, but in, in upper... Uh, in high society circles, if you like, this was a huge, huge public snub to this lady. And so she then took Mary Garden to court and demanded that she repay all the money that she had uh, laid out on her behalf. And she had to, because then then the, the story of the public snub hit the papers. There was still all the story about Mary Garden's baby circulating, and Mary Garden did have to have to pay up to this woman. She, she, she just came across as being classless, if you like, as being someone who was ungrateful, ungracious, and, like I say, a, an absolute bitch of the highest order, which, uh, you know, it's, it's a real shame because she, she she was a great singer. She's remembered as a great singer, but I think her, her memory will be tarnished forever because of this uh, series of incidents that uh, she, she really just... Uh, turned her back on the on the people who had given her everything, absolutely everything. If we talk about the book in general, then uh, we could go on for hours talking about some of the specific characters, but the book is organized in essentially individual profile chapters. I'm reminded of John Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage, and this could almost be Profiles in Evil. Um, <laughs> this, uh, it's, you have a real rogues gallery here. I like the way you style the book because at each chapter head, there is a um, – a subhead, if you will, that is a quotation about the individual of, of, of whom you're about to read in that chapter. And the title of the book, Between Daylight and Hell, comes from one of those quotations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The, the, the guy in question was a fellow called David Jack. And funnily enough, he, he, he was responsible for uh, Monterey Jack Cheese. He, he is the Jack in Monterey Jack. If only that was all we, we, we knew about this guy. Um, but he came from uh, he came from Persia. He uh, he moved across to Monterey, California, at the just after the gold rush. He was a very shrewd individual, a guy with a great mind for figures, uh, uh, just a, almost like a human calculator in some ways. And uh, he uh, he he set himself up as the city treasurer of Monterey. Now it was just after what was called the Mexican American War. So just when uh, California and various other territories came under American control and there were a whole load of rancheros and farmers, people like that, who had owned land and owned farms and there was not really anything written down to say, oh, this is the length of the lease or this is how much you have to pay in rent. It was all very, very woolly. Now, when Jack came along, he saw, here's, one, here's an opportunity for me to make some money here. He would actually um, offer people loans if they were defaulting on their rent. And uh, then he, he knew perfectly well they couldn't pay him back. So then he would foreclose the property and uh, he would basically build up a property portfolio that way. And these poor people would end up with no home, 
uh, on the streets, effectively. Mm-hmm. And they would form themselves into squatters' leagues. And as one of these squatters' leagues wrote to David Jack in the following terms, just, just after they had won a they had won a court battle for compensation. And they wrote back saying, if you don't make good that amount of damage to each and every one of us inside of 10 days, you son of a bitch, we shall suspend your animation between daylight and hell. (laughs) I thought that was a great quote. And I remember reading it. And at this point in time, I was on chapter five and I still didn't have a title for the book. I just had a working title. And I came across that quote, and I, I thought that that would be a great name for the title for the book. And it never left me. And by the time I got to about chapter sixteen or so, I hadn't found a better one. So that's between daylight and hell is what it became. Well, the book is out. Um, between daylight and hell it has been released already in Scotland, um, and it has received some very good reviews. And that has to make you feel good. I I can't imagine, you know, I've been a journalist most of my life too, working in radio, television, and print. Um, And I have friends who always say, oh, you should write a book. And the first thing is, I don't know what I want to write a book about. And if it were anything about my own life, I never kept good enough notes. I can't remember enough of the details to come up with a decent book. But that must be excruciating to have spent the years it took to research this and then write the book and then have to sit and wait for it to be printed and released and then go, oh, my God, are they going to like it? I remember that the first uh, person who who got back to me was a, a girl I know, actually, a reporter I know very well for the who works for the Scotsman newspaper, and she said she loved it. She actually wrote back to me and said it was, she thought it was brilliant. I thought, oh, my God. You know, because uh, honestly, you think, you know, you think when you've spent all these years writing, writing a newspaper, that there's nothing to it, really. But there's a huge difference between writing a story in a paper and writing a book. And I think the thing that jumped out at me was that, you know, you, you can write a story for a paper and it's very formulaic, really. There's a, there's a beginning, there's a middle and an end. And there are what we call linking paragraphs, mm-hmm. which, you know, in very many cases, very many cases are meaningless, you know. Now, this is kind of just, just, you know, about 50 words of waffle, which link the beginning to the middle, you know. But in a book, you can't quite do that. In a book, you want every paragraph to jump out at you. You want every paragraph to say something. Otherwise, you feel there's a danger that the reader will, you'll lose the reader. You know, the reader's attention will wander. And then I think, well, a book isn't like a story anyway, but a book's a whole different discipline. And I wonder if I've got it right. I wonder if I've just... And so, so when, I, when I got that first uh, uh, email, it was back, you know, I was, honestly, my heart skipped, skipped a beat. I was quite, I was really quite excited about it. And then a couple of others came back and said they liked it too. And I just hope it's reflected in the sales. That's, I mean, that's a big thing. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think, I suppose, yes, it's nice to know that your, your peers have... Uh, seem to have enjoyed it, or my peers seem to have enjoyed it. Uh, that, that is nice, and uh, who knows, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do another one. Well, that was going to be my uh, <laughs> my wrap-up question, I guess, was this one is out. Is there any thought to a sequel? Are there more rogues out there that are Scottish rogues that we yet need to be told about? Well, I mean, I think having, having done the USA, uh, I suppose the logical uh, next step might be to, to do the other main Commonwealth countries, as it were, ah. Australia, Canada, and, and New Zealand. There's so much Scottish history, Scottish history in all of them. You know, like I said, New Zealand was almost uh, created by Scots. You know, but uh, so that's a possibility. I could as well. I mean, like I say, I've got this big, big list of names of people in America. So there's no reason why I shouldn't just do a book, a general book about Scots who are unknown mm-hmm. but yet to achieve things and that's a possibility i also have a couple of people who i might look at for individual books again people who are on that list and uh, there's a possibility that i might just research them individually and write a book about them but yeah i mean i think i've i think i've been bitten by by the bug slightly i, I would love to do another two or three books actually my thanks as always to my guest ian lundy His book, Between Daylight and Hell, is scheduled to be available across the USA at major booksellers beginning this month. You can check our show notes at www.underthetartansky.scot for a few links that will help, or just Google the title. 
between daylight and hell. Next time, we'll again be looking into history as we discuss 2017, the year of history, heritage, and archaeology across Scotland, with our guest from the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland and the Scottish Storytelling Centre. And in weeks to come, we'll learn about the castles of Scotland, visit a bespoke tartan designer in the Highlands, we'll chat with another author about her wee children's book, The Tartan Witch, and we'll find out about touring Scotland by bicycle. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer, Tapale, Agus Alipa Kubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>